Welcome back to the People Behind the Tech podcast, which is brought to you by the Leaders Performance Institute and SBJ Tech. I'm John Porch, the editor at the LPI, and, as ever, I'm joined by Joe Lemire, the senior writer at SBJ Tech. Joe, are you ready for another tech and performance conversation? Absolutely, uh, and thrilled to, to have our, our guest who I first spoke to probably about six years ago, uh, and every time I learn something when we speak. I completely share your excitement because our very special guest today is Dr. Daniel Labby, an ophthalmologist and sports vision specialist who has worked with elite athletes across a range of sports. To name just a few examples, Dr. Labby has consulted in the NFL and earned several World Series rings through his work in Major League Baseball. A while ago, he also took part in a major project with Red Bull and Liverpool star Trent Alexander-Arnold, who is a Champions League and English Premier League winner with the Merseyside Club here in the UK. Dr. Labby, welcome to the show. Thank you, gentlemen. Glad to be here. And we're delighted to have you too. And I'm going to hand you over to Joe now for the first question. Yeah, thank you so much. And good to see you again. And I always start the podcast this way because we're, we're, we want to learn about your career journey. We also want to learn about the tools that you use to be a better practitioner and to help your athletes gain as much as they can. And I'm always wondering, what kind of tech have you adopted in your own life? Are you a wearable guy? Have you worked on training your own vision? Well, I think I'm probably too much of a tech guy. If you ask my wife, I spent too much of our money on uh, on tech and uh, toys, uh, adult <laughs> toys, if you will. Yeah, I've, you know, I've had the Aura Ring, I have the Whoop Band, I have a Apple Watch Ultra that I use. I measure my sleep, I measure my heart rate variability, I measure... Well, as a, as a physician, probably too many different metrics. I'm waiting for my apolipro protein B result to come back, looking at a risk for heart disease and, and things of that nature. So I think I certainly use a lot of tech. I had one of the early brain stimulation systems, the Halo system, that I used on myself before I used on anybody else. I have a stimulator set up. I think I'm quite into the tech, uh, too far into the tech <laughs> world. Yeah, absolutely. Where did you start down this journey toward sports vision when along the way and whether it was you know early on academia residency wherever it was where did you realize that sports vision is where you wanted to focus well if we go back to tech for a moment you know i was a computer science major in college i started using uh, paper tape and punch cards you know in high school in the computer and so my interest has been in computers for a long time i didn't want to make a life for that so i went into medicine and as I went through medical school, I was going to be a cardiologist. I was going to be maybe a, an ICU doctor, maybe an emergency room doctor. But as things went on, I, I was fascinated by the eye, uh, ophthalmology in the eyes, and decided that's where I was going to go to. I actually had to take a year off to make the match for ophthalmology because I was deciding into that too late to make the match the year uh, that I was graduating. And as I got into ophthalmology, I started thinking, well, you know, what's interesting is how the brain works with the vision and not just to do cataract surgery or retina surgery. In other words, not to just restore the way it should be, but I want to understand how it worked. I want to understand how, how the eyes work together to have death perception properly, the right eye alignment and so forth. And that led me to pediatric ophthalmology and strabismus, which is eye alignment work. As I got into that at UCLA, when I got to the program, the director told me, you know, you have to do a project to graduate this fellowship. This is after my residency. And they said, well, we've done some work with the LA Dodgers the previous spring, and we have this project that's not finished. We need someone to take it over and kind of finish it. I didn't really want to do a project with somebody else's. I wanted my own project. And when I um, came back to him, I said, well, I'll do it if I can be the first author on the paper and I can be in charge of the direction of what we're going to do. And we went to spring training in Vero Beach, 1993, where the Dodgers had their training camp at that time. And we were with the Dodgers, I think, either 16 or 18 seasons after that. 
I lived abroad for a few years. They flew me back every year from uh, from there to be at spring training, test everybody. And that's really how this started. I had no intention to go into sports. I'm not an athlete. I had to prove to myself that I could be athletic because I ran a couple of three marathons in my 40s. And so I proved to myself I was athletic, but that's about the extent of it. But I felt through ophthalmology and sports vision, I was able to fulfill some of that athletic desire, if you will. I don't have the, the 93 Dodgers roster in front of me, but with that group of players, like what did they make of someone coming in to test their vision? What, what did they make of the whole concept? The players were fine. Players in general are fine. To some extent, the, the minor league players have less choice than the, the major league players in baseball, but they were all fine. Those early 90s had great teams. You know, they had one team that um, had, I think, four rookie of the years, uh, Eric Harris, Raul Mondesi, Hideo Nomo, and Todd Hollinsworth, I think. You know, they, I, they, they gave me a gift of a signed bat with all four of those names on it, which was really nice. I still have that uh, right next to Tommy Lasorda's uh, signed baseball. I can tell you a funny story about that as well, but we, um, they, they were very positive. I think it came from the top, you know, the, the head of the medical department at that point was Mickey Melman and a medical doctor out in, in California. And he brought it, brought the ideas, to the team, Tommy Lasorda was behind it. You know, the, the management at that time was behind it. Many of those people have moved on to much higher levels of front office. Kim Ng, for example, was just starting out at the Dodgers at that point. And they embraced it, I think is the best way to say it. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are, are familiar with this field, but just in case there are a few that are not, let's level set for a moment. What areas of visual skills can be improved? Clearly, we're not changing visual acuity. You need LASIK or some other procedure like that. But what can be done and where did you, you start working? Well, a couple, you brought a couple. We can speak about this for a while now. Uh, <laughs> one of, you brought up a really interesting, uh, interesting point, and that's the LASIK uh, and visual acuity. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But the way to organize your thinking around sports vision is a sports vision pyramid. And pyramids are very stable structures that have been around for a long time. And they're stable because they have a wide base and they taper to the top. And if you think about the top of the pyramid as being performance on the field or in, in the sport, in the, in the game, on the pitch, if you take below that, you have to build up to that ability on top. And the very basis of that is what each eye can do on their own. And that includes visual acuity, which is sharpness of vision, what people normally consider 2020 or 66 vision, 69, 2030, such contrast sensitivity. And actually, we've seen recently the speed that you can process. Somebody who takes a minute and a half to read the 2020 line versus someone who reads it in a moment have different levels of ability. The chart doesn't reflect that because both people get the same score, but clearly they have different ability to see. And so that's the bottom of the pyramid. And if you optimize that, you can build the next levels using both eyes together. That gives you depth perception. And sometimes in some sports, visual acuity is more important, like baseball. Other sports, depth perception can be more important, like in, in soccer or, or you know English football. Uh, when you're one-on-one, -on -one, someone right in front of them, you really need to be able to judge very clearly where, they, where their bodies are, where the hips are, where the knees are, where the feet are, where the ball is in a three-dimensional space. In baseball, that's less important. And if you work your way up from using both eyes together, you get to the idea of a decision. And that decision has to be based on what you see with your eyes. And once you have a decision, you have to guide using your eyes, a motor action to be timely, to be exactly in the right place to make the action that you're looking for. And if you can do all that well, you'll be at the top of the pyramid and have optimized visual function. To get back to your visual acuity point, we've published a paper and deal with this every year with all, many, many players. Refractive surgery may not be the ideal answer for all athletes. Certainly some athletes it is. If you're a boxer, for example, refractive surgery might be beneficial to wearing contacts or glasses. But if you're a baseball player that needs vision average of 2012, you're probably not going to get that from a refractive surgical procedure. The studies show that 
not many people get to 2012. So if your contact lenses correct you to 2012 and you have refractive surgery and now you're 2020, your surgeon will say, great result, you're normal, you're 2020. I'll say we're in deep <laughs> trouble. <laughs> I won't say the other word. <laughs> um, because your vision now has gotten below the level needed to be able to recognize the spin of the seams, recognize the fingers on the ball fast enough in order to make an effective decision in motor action. And how did the sophistication of those tools advance since you started working with drivers? I know the answer is tremendously, but like when, <laughs> like maybe give us sort of where things are now, like how advanced are we? We started taking systems and putting them twice as far away as they were designed to be placed because people were maximizing the test. They were getting all the answers correct. So we had to make it much more difficult. So we put it twice as far away. So it's harder to see. And we had a better spread of players. We had to change electronic EEPROM chips inside of inside of computers to get these systems to work the way we needed them. That was back in the 90s. Fortunately, we passed that. It took a couple hours of opening computers up and trying to not bend any of the pins when you put the chip in. Because if you bent the pin, the chip is no good and the system is no good and we were, we were sunk. Now we have systems that test vision in unique ways. We, we developed a test along with one of the major pharmaceutical companies. They put in millions of dollars to do it. We've published in the, in the journals the results of that test, how that correlates to performance on the field. And that's a test that combines together the sharpness of vision, the contrast sensitivity, and the short duration of viewing. Because if you think about sports, no athlete has an unlimited time to view their target and respond to it. Everything has to be done boom, boom, quick, quick, and so forth. And so we developed a test to do that. And that correlates to performance, whereas a regular eye chart doesn't correlate to performance. In baseball in particular, the roster of teams that you've worked with is phenomenal. And as John mentioned, you have several World Series rings, Dodgers, Red Sox, Cubs, Rays, Astros are among the teams. And in fact, we're recording this, I will admit, before the World Series has been played. But all four ALCS and NLCS teams have been clients either last year or this year for you. <laughs> now, probably not a coincidence that... A, that you've clearly shown improvement, but it's also the, sort of a mark of a good progressive front office that they're looking out for help for someone like you. Uh, and I, I think those kind of go well together that the Phillies, Rangers, Diamondbacks, and, and Astros are, are all in that number. Like when you go to see these teams now, what are the main drills, tools that you're using? Yeah, we, we, well, we have one team that's definitely in the World Series that clinched it recently. In fact, eight of the 12 postseason teams were our clients in that same time frame that you mentioned there. And, and, you know, to some extent, I'm hoping it's some of the work we've done, but I think, I think you're right. I think it's a perspective of the front office that when they bring me in, they have a perspective that encompasses many other departments and many other approaches that seem to be a combination that's pretty good at winning championships. And I think that's the true reflection of, of the work. I, I think I have a small piece. I can tell you that vision, you know, vision hitting a baseball is important, but I can tell you it's a small piece when you look at the projection models. And I did this last week with another club, analyzing the vision data that we have over years, looking how that feeds into their projection models. And, you know, we're, we're in probably a 5% variability explanation with vision. So 5% doesn't sound like that much, but when you're optimizing every little piece, 5% can be significant. 5% is e enormous. I mean, you're talking the difference between a, a 250 hitter and a 300 hitter. That's 5%. And that's right. the difference between a guy who's league average and an all-star. And I think that, you know, that's clubs that recognize those pieces. And, and it's, it's not just checking someone's vision saying you get 5% that way, right? There, we we look at several different key areas that we've honed in on over the last 30 odd years that when you add them together, some of them are duplicative and we don't do them anymore because they don't contribute but they're independent. And when you add them together, you're in, the, in that range. 
And so that really becomes, I think, the thrust to get the work done. You've mentioned publishing papers and, uh, you know, in our previous conversations, you've even shown some of them to me. And it's, it's impressive that there's large sample sets, which you don't often find in elite sport and sort of that, that commitment to constantly publish sort of keeps challenging you. Like, how, how do you find inspiration for, for the new research topics and, and what's next on the horizon? Well, that, that's the fun part of it. You know, the fun part is is being able to look at new 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 devices that people put out. You know, there's no shortage of companies that create new systems, uh, and each system, if you listen to them, is the best thing since uh, then since you know buttered milk. But you have to review them, you have to evaluate them, you have to see if there's a physiologic basis to what they're talking about, because most of these companies have no evidence at all, certainly not at the professional level, for any value in what they what they're selling. So it has to physiologically make sense. If it kind of physiologically makes sense, then we can go to the next step and see if it's something that we can do on a small scale trial, if you will. And if that seems to be positive, then we're looking to see the correlations to, uh, well, we're looking actually initially for a spread. Is this test able to spread out the athletes in ability? For example, we did color vision testing when we started on the athletes, thinking that color vision might be important and recognizing the red seam on the white ball and so forth. And we found 8% of the athletes were color deficient. Now, the thing is that 8% of all males are color deficient. And so there was no difference between the normal population and the baseball population on this test. And so if there's no difference, it's not showing us anything of value. So I want to see a new system that's able to spread players out against the normal population and against themselves. I want to have a nice spread. Then the question is, does that spread correlate to any kind of performance? And you want to try to isolate in baseball the metrics that are related to vision. And those are the plate discipline metrics. Looking at batting average on base percentage, slugging percentage is not going to do it. You need to look at walk rates, strikeout rates, you know, chase rates, uh, missed strikes in the, in, the, in the strike zone. Those are the things you want to look at that, that are really going to be visual dependent, not dependent on how well a, you know an outfielder runs and catches your ball and puts an out versus the ball falling in and you have a triple. That's not what I'm interested in in terms of vision. And so you want to kind of have any new technology pass those steps to say whether we're going to incorporate it. And we try to incorporate one, maybe two systems every year at spring training when we're talking about baseball to evaluate. And fortunately, we work with enough teams that we can see, you know, between 500 and 1,000 professional athletes each spring. And when you look at that over a couple of years at unique players, uh, you end up with studies that are in the 400, 500 unique player range that are able to bring out these very subtle differences that otherwise might be covered by noise if you only have 10 players, or you make it a false positive if you only have 10 or 20 players. Here with the, these numbers, we're a little more confident that what we're seeing is actually true. So that's frankly very stimulating. That's, that's a lot of fun each season. And then I try to publish what we do. I, I give teams actually two or three years of, of benefit of the information before we publish it. I obviously want to give the teams I work with an edge so they can if they hired me, my job is to make them help them win. And I let the teams work in that area. But then after a few years, you know, for the fairness of, of uh, medical science, if you will, we publish the results. And I think that's important. In fact, I just finished writing a, a book about sports, sports vision, not so much aimed at the scientists, but more aimed at the parents, the kids, maybe front office to understand this process of how vision and sports can make a difference. And hopefully it'll be published in the, in the first quarter of next year that hopefully will be interesting to kind of explain a lot with some anecdotes about my experience. And there's been a lot of interesting anecdotes, <laughs> as well as the approach and how we can leverage vision and technology, different systems to improve an athlete, to let them play at their best. And if they have the skill and the talent, if I can get their eyes to be where they need to be, 
great for them. Well, congratulations on the book. Uh, and I'm sure this anecdote's in there. And I've had the privilege of hearing this before. But uh, for everyone else, um, Manny Ramirez, uh, I think, uh, sort of stands out for his his abilities. That, that, that's in the book for sure. That's an interesting story. And it's something I think that, that really has some value with the idea of how we can leverage, you know, some technology, but some innovation thinking outside the box, because that's, that's how you win. If you just do what everybody else does, you'll get nowhere. But if you think outside the box, not too far out the box, so you're falling in the ocean, but far enough <laughs> that you're based in something, but you can come up with something new. That's what we do with Manny. And Manny was having some trouble in, in the year 2004, the year the Red Sox won the World Series for the first time in many, many decades. Manny was feeling like he had trouble hitting the ball. Now, Manny Ramirez is somebody who, who doesn't have trouble really hitting the ball very much. We saw him in spring training. His vision was fine, but he was having this trouble. And I got a call from Jim Rowe, who at that point was the head trainer for the Red Sox, to come and see what I can do. And he told me what the problem was, and I thought about it. And so what we did was we took rings, this kind of hula ring, this kind of circular ring with uh, four wiffle balls that had colors, each was different color, that was created before. That They're called Ratner rings. They were made uh, by, by other people in the past. Sometimes the, the ring had four balls. Sometimes it had one ball. And what they did was they would throw the ring, it would rotate, and the person would have to catch the ball. And if you've ever done it, one ball is really hard to do. Four balls where you you get called out a color and you have to kind of figure out where the color is and time your action to hit it. It's pretty hard to begin with as well. But I thought that maybe that was going to be too easy for Manny. And so we developed a third ring and this is the new part. This is the outside the box, taking what you have, taking the next step. And we created a ring that had four baseballs and those baseballs had painted spin patterns because each time a pitch is thrown, the ball spins differently. And based on how the ball spins, the physics of it is such that the ball will move in a different direction. It may be a curveball, a breaking ball. It won't go straight like a fastball would go. And depending on how the pitcher spins it, that's how the ball travels. And the job of the pitcher is to fool the batter. So he thinks the ball is one place. He swings somewhere where it's not, and it's a strike, and he, he's out. And so we set up these rings with those four spin patterns, and I went to Fenway Park with three rings, the single ball, the four ball, and the four baseball rings. And I got to the clubhouse, and... If you've you know, been inside of a clubhouse before a game, it's a pretty busy place. People running all over the place. No one has time for anything and, and so forth. They put me in a room over there. And the first guy that came actually out was uh, Johnny Damon. I knew Johnny Damon from uh, uh, for a while already. Uh, this is before. This is the Red Sox years, right? And so long hair and everything. He comes out and, hey, Doc, what do you got? And I'm telling him what I got. And I threw the rings to him. And he had some trouble with the first two. And I didn't go on to the third ring with him. Next guy out was Johnny Pesky. So here's a guy who's, you know, 80 something years old, former baseball player, great player, comes out, he does it. And as you expect, it wasn't that successful. And then Manny was always tough because Manny, Manny was like to play a lot. You know, you remember from Manny being Manny in, in, in the in left field. I used to have to chase him around the locker room to get him to do his eye exam. He used to come to he used to come out, <laughs> come out off the field for his eye exam sometimes, like all drenched in sweat, because this is, you know, Florida. In the, in the spring, and he gave me a big hug, and, you know, I get full of sweat. I was like, well, that's not so, uh, that's not so much fun. But he, he, was, he was a great personality. He came out. I threw the first ring to him, and he had absolutely no trouble catching the ball, not the ring and not missing anything, just catching the ball, and boom, right away. He said, Doc, this isn't going to be very, very useful. I said, great, I have something better. I then took the four-ring wiffle ball with the four different colors. I, I threw it to him. When the ring was halfway there, I said, red. He grabbed the red ball, boom. I did it again with different color, grab that one, boom. Doc, this isn't going to be very useful for me. I said, Manny, wait a second, I got one more ring for you. 
And I threw that one and I yelled out fastball and he like missed. And then we did it again and he missed again. And then we did it a third time, if I remember correctly. And then he started to get it. He's like, doc, this is hard. This is challenging. And that was what kind of sold him on it, that here's something that he could think he could master. It wasn't a piece of cake in the beginning. And it had a lot of similarity to what he had to do with the plate. Because if you think about hitting a ball, you have to predict where, and, and prediction is the key to the visual system here in sports, but you have to predict where the ball is going to come. You have to time your hand uh, through the bat to make contact. With the ring, you have to predict which ball is rotating to the, which ball you have to see. So to identify it, you have to follow it. You have to predict how it's going to rotate when it gets to you. And you have to make a motor action to grab it at just the right time. Very similar to what you have to do with batting. And Manny found that very helpful. And Manny did it every prior to every game, the rest of that season, where he became the MVP of the World Series. And for the rest of his career, he taught it to other players. I understand he taught it to Derek Jeter as well. The Red Sox trainers had it in their trunk when they traveled. One of the trainers was assigned to always play with Manny with the rings just prior to him going out in the field as a warm-up. And it was a mental warm-up where he didn't have to expend energy and, and use you know swing the bat and um, kind of get fatigued, if you will. Uh, in reps, he was able to do this as a purely mental cognitive way to kind of hone his timing, wake up his timing, get his timing right before he went out and actually performed uh, on the field. And that's the Manny story. Yeah, and it's a great one. And it's so instructive about that whole chain of of processing. It's got some innovation part to it. I've got a lot more questions, but I'm going to let John chime in for a bit here. <laughs> Thank you very much, Joe. I just wanted to ask about the arc of your career thus far, three decades now. How have you managed to balance being both a researcher and a practitioner? I know a lot of people in high-performance sport aren't able to achieve that balance. How have you managed to do that? Well, it probably has, you know, I'm, I'm all, I was also trained as my fellowship, as I mentioned, at UCLA as a pediatric ophthalmologist. So I've taken care of thousands of kids. I've done surgery to take eyes, you know, uh, eyes that were crossed in or eyes that were turned out to make them straight, to get kids to use both eyes together again, eye patching and so forth. And, and that's been a piece of my career as well. So I think sports has maybe advanced at the detriment of some of the pediatric work. You know, I, I probably haven't spent as much time in that area as I could have. There's no regrets in that because I really enjoy the sports and I still see kids. In fact, this afternoon when we finish, I'll be seeing some kids in the office today as well. But most of my time, uh, it, percentage is spent in sports and the research probably comes, you know, in the evening and maybe that's the detriment of the family and some family time I can spend together with them. But I think Hopefully my balance has been has been appropriate. I think so, and um, I, I'm happy to have you know fortunate to have two grandkids that I can now spend time with them. And as my career changes, the amount of emphasis on things changes. I'm probably not publishing as many papers as I have before. At one point, I had the most sports vision papers of of any one published. Uh, probably not true anymore, but I have a a couple papers in review. I have the book I mentioned. So I think that's still moving, but not quite as much. And now I'm kind of focusing on, on to some extent, choosing teams that I think I like to work with. Earlier on, I would work with anyone who came to me, right? I, I, you're starting out, you, you take what you get. I'm a little bit more selective now. And if I don't feel that the client, if it's an individual athlete or the team, the club is really engaging me well, you know, it's nice to have the money, but money is also time and time is the most valuable thing that I have. And I want to place my time into places where we can win. Uh, where we can, I can make a difference, where I have people I can interact with because I, I get stimulated by the, the team. You know, we, we talk about different ideas and that helps me think about other things we can do and think about things in a new way that may be beneficial to everybody. So I think I've been more selective, which allows my time to be a little more 
more valuable, if you will. And in light of that, how does a typical consultancy look? When will you come in? What are some of the first questions you ask? How do you begin testing and assessing? How long will you typically stay with a team in a single period? And then ultimately, how do you measure progress and transference to the pitch, the courts, wherever it happens to be? Almost all the clubs I work with, the relationships with the club are multi-year. Uh, the Red Sox since 2004, for example, Dodgers were 18 years. The teams that, that Joe mentioned in the uh, league championship series, the four teams, those teams are all, are all multi-year, either are or were multi-year relationships. Most often what happens, front office changes, and when the front office changes or the uh, medical staff changes, uh, often the eye doctor changes, if you will, to to the sometimes the detriment. Well, so far we've seen we've seen to the detriment of some of the clubs uh, in baseball playoffs uh, so far. The, the relationships tend to be long. Very few of the relationships are, are one or two year relationships. And my, my hope is that they recognize a value. And you know, I just I just got an email from a, a assistant GM from another club. You know, wanting to up again my contract, uh, multi year contract that we have. I prefer multi year contracts because that takes off some of the pressure of every year having to negotiate which is not an area that I'm interested in. I'm interested in getting the work done and keeping the connection. <laughs> Another club that we finished the season kind of assumed that was the end of my work with them and were surprised when I told them, well, no, we need to get together and we have to talk about this other stuff. My contract goes until December. We have still more to do. They were a little surprised about that. And so to me, it's you know one or two year contracts usually. And I'm all in from January 1 to December 31st. And if it involves seeing players, I'm, I'm going to out to Arizona next uh, in, in 10 days to see a bunch of players out there from one of the clubs. It, I have another in January, I have to go to Florida for some work, to another club. It's a year round type of thing. And in fact, it's not so much with the Premier League, uh, the, the, you know, the, the A team or, or the Major League team. My impact is more on the uh, lower level players, the developing players, because they're the players that have the raw talent. They've identified that by the club. And if we can optimize their vision, they can utilize their talent to move forward. A big league player, uh, you know, like someone like Trent, and we, we put Trent through a lot, uh, if you remember that video, a lot of work. Uh, and he learned things, and we trained things, and we improved things. But that's not too common. Most of the time, if you're playing at that elite level, you've shown that you can do it. You can play there. And you're not going to have a major vision deficit. Now, there may be things we can tweak, like we did with Manny. Uh, Stephen Drew is another another example, a baseball player who um, was terrible, I think, 2013 World Series in the postseason. I saw him game contacts. is the last game of that series where he had gone, I think it was a .017 batting average or something like that. It was abysmal. He was a good fielder, but it was abysmal at the plate. He was almost an out automatically. That last game with his new lenses, he went two for four, would have been three for four, except for a, a diving play by the Cardinals' first baseman, whose name I forgot. But um, one of those is a home run, and that sort of sealed the World Series in that final game for the Red Sox. And so you can make in-season changes and improve a player who's having a problem. No question about that. The work is with the developing players, the players that we're, we have talent identified, but we want to make sure everything's optimized. And that's something that happens all year round. What sort of questions do people come to you with? Perhaps these young players haven't seen someone like you before. They must be curious at the very least. Well, Trent is a great example of that. He, he, was, uh, he was interesting. Other players, for example, one of the NBA teams I work with, some of the players, some of the really good players, we're, we're doing a study and I, we published a study looking at um, what their eyes were tracking, something called the quiet eye, uh, when they were making free throws. And uh, one of these, and I can't tell you the name of the guy, but one of the big star of, one of, the, of this team, excellent player, we, we had each of them, each of the players doing 30 free throws and we're seeing their success rate 
percent how many of those 30 they got they got in and looking to see what their eyes were looking at when they were making those 30 shots and looking to see correlations connections with that and this one guy can do better than i think the 14 out of 30 that that he got because he was just kind of playing with us so sometimes these guys don't take it too seriously and they kind of uh, on purpose like they do with concussion tests sometimes you know concussion test people will in the beginning of the season will purposely do poorly so that if they get hit and they have uh, have something they get retested, their score hasn't changed, they go back at the play when they really have had some damage. This guy was on purpose missing free throws, uh, whereas other guys were getting a 30 out of 30. And when you look at their eye fixations, they were really tight right around the rim, and they were making all 30. And you look at the guys that weren't on purpose missing shots, they were looking all over the backboard, all over the rim uh, on their 30 shots, and they were missing half of them. So sometimes the players don't take it too seriously, but Trent, for example, took it extremely seriously, I think. A little hard to understand his accent. It took me a, a, a few minutes to understand that Liverpool uh, Liverpool dialect. Uh, you think it's hard enough to hear to speak to someone from London? It's much harder to speak to somebody from Liverpool uh, when you grew up in New York City. But it's uh, it took a while. But he, I think he really got into it. He came with a little bit of a, I'm Trent, I'm good. And I think we quickly were able to uh, knock that down. I think you saw that in the video where he uh, realized that I was giving him things to do that were not that easy and he was failing. And he's extremely competitive. And when we trained him remotely over the ocean, if you will, uh, we had many sessions together. I found him extremely competitive and he wanted to be the best. And he worked really hard to get to the top of the table on one of the tests. And when he got there, he was quite excited because he was comparing himself to other athletes and he was the best. And so when you have that attitude, we have a good formula for success in my evaluation, in my training, in my suggestions uh, to try to help the athlete. So will you actively try and provoke failure in those tests rather than showing athletes, oh, look how great you are. You actually say to them, okay, I'm going to give you this test. And if they don't perform as well as you think they should or they think they should, you've provoked that failure. Is that part of your method as well? Well, provoking failure definitely motivates motivates work and motivates attention. But I think it's important to understand two pieces. One what I what I've tried one of the a lot of the papers I published really have set out what the what the bottom line is for visual abilities in athletes, because it's not a matter of just training for training's sake. That that would be a mistake. Athletes, you know, don't have time to spend all day training their visual functions. That would be, you know, a real big mistake. So I've tried in my papers in different sports. A paper, for example, based on the, our work with the U.S. Olympic team for the Beijing Games, with a dozen or so different sports to put out what's the level of an Olympic athlete's visual abilities in these areas because no one really had ability to compare what somebody was to what they needed to play or what other people had at the elite level. And so if someone has vision of 2015 in baseball, for example, they don't necessarily need to be corrected with contact lenses to be 2012. They need to have the ability to pick up what they need visually to move on to the next step. Uh, And the same thing with reaction time or hand-eye coordination. If you're doing well, we showed that the top 60% is fine. There's no no difference in performance in baseball if you're in the top 60% of your ability to react to a, a target. Now, if you're at the bottom 20%, we have trouble. And in fact, uh, an ongoing project I'm in the middle of writing up the results of was taking those bottom 20 and training them during the season and seeing how that impacted their performance at the plate. And we, we've had some good results with that. And so if the question is, are you worse than you should be for your sport? And knowing what each sport needs, if you have that information, you can then say someone needs to train. So if Trent did well, which he did in certain areas, Trent, you did great. We don't have to give you glasses. But Trent, if your ability to 
monitor multiple targets at the same time isn't what it needs to be compared to what it should be and on average for someone at your level we have to train that and that's what we did with trent and that's where he moved up to the top of the table so training to correct what well, the first part is is improving or correcting to the level required the next question is if you have someone who's normal if you make them better will they perform better well that may or may not be true the data is very sketchy on that we published a couple of papers with a colleague of mine out in uh, san diego greg applebaum about looking at the literature in a, a meta-analysis type of way and it's very sketchy in terms of can we just train someone to make them better and they're going to play better the studies just are not are not really that good and so to me the important thing is the first step I want to make sure everybody is where they should be for their sport in that ability. After that, we can talk about going further, but the first is to get to that average point. And I guess that dictates the language you use with an athlete as well. So if we use the Trent example again, when you were telling him about the things he wasn't so good at, you weren't sugarcoating it in any way whatsoever. You actually were just telling it to him straight. It all depends on the relationship with the athlete. Every person is different. And I think one of the things you learn as a medical doctor is how to speak to patients as a pediatric person, kids and parents. And there are some people understand it at one level and there's some people understand it at a different level. And there's no judgment involved, but my goal is to make them understand. And so if I think this person can be stimulated by, let's say, being challenged, then I'll do that. If I think they need to kind of understand that it's not that bad, but we can fix it and we can get them to be good, we'll go that route. And so you really have to have a, a relationship with the athlete. There's a matter of respect from both sides where you have to respect their abilities and what they've done because they've done something that I can never dream of doing. Even though, I, you know, three marathons, I didn't tell you I wasn't the winner of the marathon. Uh, <laughs> I just wasn't the last person. You have to respect what they what they can do and they, re, you know, respect should respect what you've had 30 years of experience and so forth. And when you have that kind of relationship, then it becomes beneficial to both parties. I can help them and they can help me understand what they need to perform at their best. Final question from me before I kick it back to Joe. What are some of the common misconceptions about your work? There's many misconceptions about my work. And unfortunately, a lot of my colleagues practice the same thing for everybody the same. And you would never go to an eye doctor uh, or any doctor and hope to get the same pill that he gives to everybody. I would hope you would recognize that's not the doctor you want to go to. You want to go to the doctor who listens to what you have to say, examines you to try to get objective information, puts the two together into a diagnosis, and then based on that diagnosis, an appropriate treatment plan is developed to cure your cure your, of your problem. And in sports vision, many, many, many sports vision specialists, doesn't matter what you come with, what sport you're playing, what your problem is, they do the same thing. And that unfortunately, taints to some extent the the field because what happens is a team hires one of them they spend a year nothing happens they don't get anywhere now that team is not going to talk to me because as far as they're concerned vision is not doesn't make any sense it's not developed enough there's no data and we're not going to use it and that's a major challenge there aren't many unfortunately in the field that think in a scientific evidence-based approach to try to evaluate design a plan and correct or treat. And I think if there was more of that, we would see this idea of vision in sports become much more, much more popular. You um, mentioned earlier the, the, the eye tracking for the, you know, the free throws and the idea of the quiet eye, whether it's those kinds of glasses or, or virtual reality, what are some of these new technologies that have shown some efficacy? Yeah, the, you know, I've, I've been in virtual reality since 1990, 91, when we created the first surgical simulator in ophthalmology. We published it. We used 
if you remember the game Operation, where you had to pick up a bone without sure. touching the side and hearing a buzz, it's basically that. We used a Nintendo Power Glove that we took apart. We put it on a syringe. We used an app called HyperCard on an old Macintosh system and created this um, cards that would move as you moved your, your syringe forward because we're simulating an injection that people used to have to give underneath or behind the eye for cataract surgery. It's not done anymore. It's done differently now, but that was back in the early 90s. I've had a dozen head-mounted displays over the years. And one of the things that you know I think has been a big push is to use virtual reality in sports. And we've seen some fairly large companies create these systems, whether they're a cave where you go into and you're in a virtual space where you're trying to hit a baseball or you're wearing a head-mounted display and seeing a pitch come towards you and reacting to that pitch, either actually swinging or pushing buttons. Unfortunately, I don't believe any of those, certainly in sports like baseball, uh, we'll talk about in, in soccer in a minute because there's an interesting piece we did with Trent on that that didn't make the movie too much. But those are not enough fidelity to the actual task of hitting a baseball to be valuable. Uh, if you think about the resolution of the head-mounted display, if you look at the frame rate of those displays, they're not able to show the critical spin, finger position, release of the ball, and the early trajectory of the ball from a apparent 60 or 50 to 60 foot difference distance that is giving the batter the cues they normally use to decide about and to swing at a pitch. So what I think it works better is one step behind is where you're not trying to simulate actually hitting, but you're trying to evaluate and train the different visual cognitive aspects that are related to batting. As we've talked about hand-eye coordination, reaction time, potentially the vision part of it, the concentration part of it, and so forth. And those are not trying to simulate hitting a ball. They're kind of interactive three-dimensional tasks that where virtual reality is, is really good at this point. Even augmented reality, things like the home court app, for example, we use that with Trent, uh, is augmented reality type of thing. Th those, those are more valuable, I think, than the systems that are trying to replicate the actual task in baseball. Now, I will say what we did with Trent, we developed, and, and thanks to Red Bull that backed this project, I won't say it was an open check, but it was a pretty big check to be able to create a virtual reality system for Trent that was unique and never had done before. And what we did, uh, and Trent learned this at the very end of the film, we took one of his plays from a few years ago, digitized it, put him into his place on the field, on the pitch where he was in the play itself, and the ball moved from the athletes exactly the same way as it did in this real play, and he had to actually then kick the ball or decide to do with the ball what he wanted to. And that was actually a combination of virtual reality and augmented reality play. So he would see the play developing just as it had a couple of years prior. Then when he looked down at the ball that he was had received, it would actually be a ball and he would kick that ball. And we would then track that ball using LIDAR and other techniques to see where it was going to end up. And we put that back into the virtual space. And so he actually truly kicked the ball. It moved virtually where it would have gone in physical space, but it was actually in the field. And that actual play was one where he, I think he passed it to Mo Salva, scored a goal with that pass. But Trent didn't remember, he, he makes a lot of plays. He didn't remember that exact play. And we challenged him then and took away a lot of his vision. We blocked it uh, intermittently so he couldn't see where the ball was gonna go. We gave him uh, confounders. For example, we had um, other teammates of his that we recorded separately and we played in his ears things calling him to pass the ball to them that didn't actually happen, but was meant to make him stop for a split second to think what he's going to do and see how that affected his play. And we went through that drill. It was, it was a lot of technology. It didn't work 100%, but it worked pretty well. 
a lot of it didn't make the didn't make the film, but it was uh, that I think is maybe the future where we can combine actual plays of athletes with augmented reality where they actually have to kick kick a ball, for example. So they actually have that physical connection to the play. And then we can measure where that ball goes and put that back into the virtual space, allowing them to experience once again a play that they did before, see if they want to do something differently, see if they actually do something differently, see if we can make it more difficult for them. And we can track their eyes to see what they're looking at to make sure they're being as efficient as possible and picking up the information about teammates and opponents on the pitch or on the court or on the field in real time. So that I think is uh, where technology is headed. That system is, is not commercial. It was really built just for that Red Bull project. But I think those are the sorts of things that we're going to see coming out in the future where we have sensory information of what the athlete is doing, where we have actual physical actions that the athlete is making in a as realistic scenario as we can using virtual and augmented reality. Yeah, that's fascinating. And anyone who's played video games knows there's usually a cheat code and, and passing the ball to Mo Salah is usually that cheat code. <laughs> um, it, works, it works often, yes. <laughs> yeah. The uh, One final one. Certainly the younger players now have grown up with a, a smartphone in their hands at all times. And we've heard a lot of speculation as to what that's doing division. Have you seen in your, your practice any appreciable change in people's vision as there's presumably as a, a result of smartphone usage? Well, a lot, a lot of this is now gestalt, right? Because there really haven't been good studies that correlate. I can tell you that, and you know, I've been doing this for 30, over 30 years. <laughs> I just got a letter from the Academy of Ophthalmology yesterday saying that I've been a member 35 years. I no longer have to pay dues. I'm now a life member. That makes me feel kind of old. Um, <laughs> I'm happy not to pay the dues anymore, but uh, I still feel kind of old. Uh, so over that period of time, there has been a definite increase in the rate of myopia or nearsightedness to the point that it's almost uh, epidemic. Now, we're not talking about COVID here, but if we look at Asia in particular, the number of, of people, kids, uh, young adults that are nearsighted or myopic, incredibly increased over the last several decades, even in this country. If we even take out the Asian population, just the, the Western, if you will, population, a significant, you know, big, much more increase. The amount of people I give glasses for has increased. The amount of research in ways to try to slow that down has significantly increased. There's many, many papers about techniques we can use to try to minimize the amount of nearsightedness. Now, whether that's connected to the similar increase in use of near devices over the last 20 or 30 years, I haven't seen specific convincing research that shows that, but those are certainly two things that are tracking together. We do know that people, for example, I, I used to joke that people that used to read Harry Potter books in the entire entire weekend, the book an entire weekend, are probably going to be myopic because that near work tends to be a stimulus for becoming more myopic. And so it's logical to posit that potentially people that are spending a lot of time, maybe not reading a book, but looking at their devices could also be triggering increased myopia. Fascinating. As someone who has had Poor vision since, you know, and I've had vision correction since first grade. I, uh, I turned 40 this year. Actually, I was at the eye doctor just yesterday, and that 40th birthday triggered my first reading test, and it was a very humbling moment for me. Thankfully, that my near, I'm still just as nearsighted as before. I didn't need any additional correction, but, uh, you know, it's something I've sort of been curious of. I'll pass it over to, to John for, uh, for a finale. Thank you very much, Joe. What excites you about what's coming down the road? Well, I, th I think what excites me most is the fact that hopefully I've been a part of being able to light a flame and that what I'm seeing is a significant expansion in interest in not only vision, but ways that vision 
interacts with performance, both in terms of you know teams interested in, in working with people like me, but also t- teams looking at you know how how performance models and how statistics and how uh, metrics can be leveraged to improve an athlete pass just simply doing batting practice you know every every day before a game or simply kicking kicking a ball or running you know back and forth 200 meters or something those are things that may have some value but people are looking at it in a much more I'll say jaundiced eye they're looking at it I want to see the evidence I want to see the truth I want to see the statistics because statistics if you do it properly don't lie the Jeremy Lin story in the NBA comes to mind where, you know, people looked at him and said, he's not going to be any good. You know, he's too short. He's the wrong background. He's not going to play well. And he, I don't think he was uh, drafted as, as, uh, as high as he should have been. And he ended up, you know, having a, a decent career in basketball. And so this idea of cigar chomping people that are watching athletes play and deciding who's going to play and who's not going to play in their career, regardless of how much time the athlete has spent trying to develop themselves and, and become, become an expert, I think those days are getting to be behind us. And that's what's most exciting to me. Whereas now we're looking at, I don't have to see what the person looks like. I'm going to see what they've done. I'm going to see what they can do. I'm going to see what the numbers show. And that's going to tell me whether or not this person is going to be projected to play where we want them to play or to fill a gap that we project to have that we want to fill. And to me, that's a much more objective, scientific um, and I think as we've seen when we started talking about the four clubs in the uh, league series, and you know, I think the two that are going to make the World Series in baseball this year, those are clubs that have that approach to looking at the numbers, looking at how the projections, using the metrics that are scientifically shown because we know the earth rotates around the sun. It, it's not that the sun rotates around the earth. There's science and there's fact. And you can talk all you want about the sun going around the earth. That's not the way it works. We go around the sun. And... If we look at things objectively in sports in that same way, we have a better chance of winning. And I think what's exciting is that that's the approach people are taking. Brilliant. Dr. Labby, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Enjoyed it.